0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Black Death wrought a horrific death toll in the mid-14th century. But did it also usher in a cascade of social and cultural changes that eventually led to the rise of Europe? Well, Oxford University professor James Bellich thinks so. And he lays out his case in his recent book, The World the Plague Made. David Musgrove put in a call to James to find out more, kicking off by asking him to remind us what exactly the Black Death was.
3: Well, the Black Death was a a, a terrible plague pandemic that struck Europe and its neighbours in the 1340s, the middle of the 14th century. There's been a lot of controversy in recent years about what it actually was, But recently, the scientific evidence has become fairly conclusive that it was bubonic plague, uh, Yersinia pestis, as people had long thought, and not some other disease. Essentially, uh, it was a terrible pathogen that was transferred mainly by the fleas on black rats, which proliferated rapidly and infected humans because black rats happened to be commensal with humans, that is, they lived in human habitations. Bear in mind that black rats are not the rats one might be familiar with today, uh, which are brown rats, but a much smaller animal, much shyer animal, mainly nocturnal. So they'd they'd hide in the roofs of houses and barns. That's where they'd sleep and make their nests. And they would feed on the human supplies, uh, mainly grain was their preferred food. And they weren't great swimmers, but they could swim out to a ship and they particularly liked a ship with a cargo of grain. All ships had some grain because they had to feed the crew and so they'd either have grain or grain products. And mainly through the shipping lines, but also through rivers and land routes, this terrible bubonic plague spread around Western Europe. Uh, Occasionally it was kind of amplified by pneumonic transmission, that is um, human spittle from one to another. But the pneumonic variant of plague was so lethal that a human with it couldn't travel very far. So I think the main distributor was, the the main villain was the black rat and that this was, as has long been thought, bubonic plague. Uh, And the death rates in the first strike, they were lower later, uh, but in the first strike, look like they were around 50%, which is a staggeringly lethal disease. There are very few diseases that are in that ballpark.
2: Now, when we think about the Black Death, certainly when we're in Britain or Europe, we kind of tend to think of it as, a, as something that really impacted on Europe in the main. Is that correct, or was it a global phenomenon? I.e., where did it most um, severely land?
3: The answer to that is slightly complicated in that a lot of people still think that it originated in China and that it swept through both China and India as well as Europe. Uh, My own view is that it um, originated in West Asia and that its main impact was on the Middle East, North Africa and Europe. So basically Europe and its neighbours were subjected to this massive shock, whereas other parts of the world were not.
2: And is that a, a controversial view? Is that a view that other people would disagree with?
3: Uh, yes, I think it's probably fair to say it is controversial. Some argue that it was spread by the Mongols um, in the 13th century, but I, I think it emerged in a pretty particular part of um, what's now the region of Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and that it then went west, not east, uh, for various kind of accidental reasons. And that it came down the Russian river system with grain cargos into the Black Sea and was then uh, spread via seaways in the main um, around the Mediterranean and then into Northern Europe.
2: And what about in the East? What do you think happened in in China and, and Asia in terms of the, the Black Death impact?
3: The indirect impact of the Black Death on those areas was very substantial uh, because I argue that The Black Death created a situation which ultimately triggered European expansion and provided the technological means for it, as well as some cultural twists, uh, which made Europeans more formidable. Uh, This also applies to the Islamic Middle East. And at first, the expansive impulse existed in the Middle East as well. But over the centuries, Eastern Europe and the Middle East kind of dropped out of the contest or fell behind. And by the 18th century, Western Europe had taken the lead in expansion.
2: Okay. You've slightly gone into the uh, the next question I wanted to ask you, which is to get right into the heart of of what you're talking about in your book. And to quote your book's subtitle, which was The Black Death and the Rise of Europe, how did... The Black Death lead to the rise of Europe? I realise that's a very big question, but can you just summarise just a little bit about what you think your main argument is?
3: It's a question of motives and means. The means are very important, you know, it's all very well wanting to take over someone else's territory, but if you can't get there, and if you can't uh, defeat them in battle, then it's not possible. What happens after the Black Death is that there's a huge shortage of labour, and that shifts West Eurasian technology towards labour-saving techniques. And those include using more water power, which massively increased European production of iron and steel, using more wind power, which basically took the form of long-range, all-weather generalist ships, which we may as well call galleons, and also took the form of using chemical energy in the form of gunpowder. Guns were invented in China and had reached Europe before the Black Death. But mass uptake of uh, cannon and handheld firearms, muskets and their forebears, uh, actually came after the Black Death. And the big incentive for turning to muskets was not necessarily that they were any better than bows, but that they took far less time to learn how to use It took you 10 years to train a longbowman and five years to train a crossbowman, and it took you three months to train a musketeer. So, in effect, guns were a labour-saving device. And although China had guns, uh, the European version, which was quickly taken up by the Ottomans in the Middle East, was kind of plague-forged. It was a a plague-hardened technology. And the same is true of the galleons. Other people had sailing ships, but they were designed as specialists to sail in particular seas and particular seasons. In Europe, the shortage of labour meant that people abandoned the use of large galleys for anything except warfare in the Mediterranean and turned instead to sailing ships, which required far fewer crew, of course, and uh, those ships had to be developed so that they were fully rigged and so that they could tack into the wind to some degree and so they could survive in both the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. And this gave them a capacity to move long range. And once there were guns mounted on them and once Europeans could build forts on foreign coasts, or Ottomans for that matter, they gave a real advantage at least as far as coastal power was concerned. You still couldn't move a lot of people you know, the, the size of galleons was was too slight for that and the number was too slight. But you could keep coming. And when you did arrive, you may be few in numbers, but you had a lot of guns, a lot of cannon, a lot of muskets, and you could plant your forts uh, like leeches in the side of much more powerful states like uh, the Mughal Empire or China. And it was very difficult to eject people
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire?
3: You need Indeed. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, that little package of means, which I call the expansion kit, was supplemented by various other things we can get to if you wish. But it also worked hand in hand with an increase in motives. When the Black Death struck, it killed people, not animals, not cash not barns, not houses, nothing else, just people and rats and a few other animals. It didn't really affect useful domestic animals very much at all. And that meant that there was twice as much per head of everything. Although there were far fewer people, a higher proportion of them could get into the market uh, for exotic luxuries and for comforts such as furs and cured fish to eat during Lent so that you didn't further enrage an angry God who had already visited plague upon you. And so the demand for these products, for sugar, for spices, for slaves, for furs, for stockfish, for whale products increased massively. You can track this quite precisely Uh, as these things go, in the depletion of things like herring and cod in the North Sea and the movement of northern European fishermen into the North Atlantic in pursuit of further stocks. Uh, And you can also track it through an upturn in the penetration of Muslim merchants into the Southeast Asia, for example, uh, in the 15th century, long before Vasco da Gama. Uh, There was a big Islamic push emanating mainly from Hormuz in the Persian Gulf and Aden at the mouth of the Red Sea. Uh, So the Indian Ocean trade was reconfigured before Western Europeans had even arrived. And it was reconfigured largely to deliver more spices like pepper and cloves for which there was now much greater Middle Eastern as well as European demand.
2: So there's a, a bit of a paradox in what you're saying there then, isn't it, in terms of a surprising increase in demand for essentially consumer products, despite the fact that there had been a decrease in the number of people available to, to consume those products.
3: That's right. And it's one of several counterintuitive things about plague. I mean, it's a terrible human disaster. But the fact is that it hits a society which is undercapitalized where, you know, only 5%, a tiny elite, uh, have surplus income, discretionary income. And when that group of the buying class, as it were, increases to 15%, even though the population has halved, you've got more buyers in the market. And once people have got over the terrible shock of um, traumatic death of half their loved ones, they adapt with remarkable resilience to the new circumstances, and you start getting to see things like the lower classes for the first time using pepper and the lower classes for the first time, maybe I should say middle classes, using furs and having uh, stockfish, as well as things like more meat in their diets. And the skeletal evidence for this is, is widespread and cumulatively convincing.
2: Could we just clarify a bit the, the time period that we're talking about for these changes to kick in? I think in the book you talk about a sort of a golden age for 150 years or so after the, the Black Death. I suppose it depends, golden age is a, depends on whether you're alive or dead, I suppose, but we're talking about a century and a half or so for when these changes start to kick in?
3: Yes, it's a period of about a century and a half when you have a golden age is, is a kind of contestable term. What you're talking about is for at least the middle orders, an increase in the amount of meat eaten, in the quality of housing, uh, in the amount of cloth bought in rather than homespun and so on. It's a, from a modern point of view, it's probably a fairly marginal uptick in living standards, but it meant a lot to people at the time. And as the population started to rise again, which was not really until about 1500, earlier in some places, later in others... When it starts to rise again, wages go down, the labourer no longer has the whip hand, and the golden age comes to a fairly rapid halt as uh, numbers increase, living standards decline. So it's relatively brief in the very long scale, 150 years, but people do remember it. They remember a time when there were still masters and men, but masters treated their servants with more respect, where uh, living standards were higher, where meat-eating was more common, and where the Middle Orders and, and the peasantry had at least a fighting chance. And uh, when elites tried to take back these gains, there are a number of urban and peasant rebellions. The number increased threefold, I think, after the Black Death as these people tried to hold on to their gains. And generally speaking, they succeeded until about 1500. And that memory of uh, a world we have lost, in the words of uh, some English historians, remains in folk culture, as it were, and has a significant effect further down the line. But even after the so-called golden age for common folk comes to an end around 1500, other legacies of the plague such as uh, galleons and guns and expansionism uh, persist. It's just that the profits tend to go to fewer people.
2: Just going back to the point we were talking about at the start of the conversation about where the plague fell most heavily, and you said that it fell in Europe but also across the Middle East and even more widely than that, Did all these things that you just talked about in the expansion toolkit, were those developments across the whole area where the plague hit or were they more focused uh, in Europe? At what point do things start to sort of channel into Europe in your story?
3: Europe has a relative advantage in that it starts to to move up. Uh, The north north of Europe's got more resources such as water power and fur animals and, and whales and cod. But nevertheless, the kind of early winner in the post-plague stakes is the Ottoman Empire, which is West Eurasia's uh, biggest and most sophisticated state. And they take over the gun technology that's been developed further north, and it's they who have the first regular army, the first artillery park, and it's they who expand most, and it's they who are masters of the great post-plague art, which is getting people to work for you and fight for you by hook or by crook, by coercion or by bribery. At first, if you had to pick a winner, a large-scale winner in the post-plague world, it would be the Ottomans. But later, they're joined by the Iberian powers, the Portuguese and the Spanish, and then all three of those empires during the 17th century begin to decline, as empires tend to do. And it's then that uh, the Northern European powers, France, Britain and Russia, start to come to the party and they become the leading expansionists in the 18th century. Uh, But initially it's not just a European thing. It's a wish Eurasian thing
2: now that's what you've just said there is is very interesting because I think in one of uh, one of the reviews of the book, I think it was Peter Frankopan who, uh, who who reviewed your books sort of talks about the fact that it's quite a big leap to talk about uh, the mid 14th century having an impact on the industrial Revolution in the, in the 18th century, and do you see that sort of that line going from the Black Death right up to, to the industrial revolution?
3: I do, and I know it seems like drawing a very long bow, but when you think about it, if we take British history, for example, uh, most people would agree that amongst the main props of of Britain's ascent were things like sea power, the export of manufactured woolen products in particular, woolen cloth, broadcloth, the dominance of London as the engine of economic transformation. Uh, and all three of those things emerge very soon after 1350. It's then that the relative dominance of London begins to rise. And it's then that the, the British start to develop sea power by about 1400. They're penetrating the Icelandic cod fisheries by the early 15th century, by about 1415. And it's, of course, you know, that search for cod and whales that eventually leads people towards the Americas. Uh, so in the case of Britain you can see that the bases of Britain's eventual rise are actually incubated in the post-plague era. And these things, you know, you track them through. There is a a sort of... There is a medium-term story in global history.
2: I just want to go back to one of the things you talked about earlier, which was, you said that there was kind of a memory of the Black Death, 150 years or so on. People remembered the impact. And of course, they would have done. You know, if we're talking about half the population decline, it's not something that, that people would forget. But one of the things that came through in your book is the impact it might have had on people's worldview, on their philosophy, and perhaps led some people to have a less risk-averse approach to life, taken a more entrepreneurial approach. Is that something that you you could tell us a bit about?
3: A great mystery has long been, why do the Portuguese sailors in Lisbon sail off to the Far East, India and Southeast Asia when they know full well after the first few years that they've got at best a one in two chance of getting home alive? One of the factors may be that if they stay in Lisbon, they may be struck by plague, which repeatedly hit that city and most other port cities. If they take ship to the Far East, at least, they're not going to catch plague because plague expires on a ship after 40 days, which is the origin of our term quarantine, quarante 40, 40. So they're not going to die of plague. They might die of other diseases, and indeed there's a one in two chance that they will, but they might also make themselves a fortune and uh, gain standing and status, and they might even make it home as well. So I think plague might have affected attitudes to risk in that way. But there are other drivers of uh, the willingness of people to take such huge risks with their lives. And one of those, I argue, was something I call crew culture, where particular regions that had previously used their, their manpower to grow grain now ditched grain growing and imported it from areas where it was grown more cheaply and more easily. And eventually that meant that they turned to other kinds of economic activities such as dairy farming or growing grapes or flax for linen, which women and children could do at least as well as men. So in these particular regions, usually mountainous or coastal, infertile regions, which weren't really well adapted to grain growing. you've got these surplus males, uh, disposable males as I call them, who are exported by these regions and and they join other people's armies, they join mercenary groups, they join ships, uh, they become fishermen, they become whalers, they become pirates, bandits, you name it. And they operate in crews of single men. Uh, They're formidable, they're risk-taking, They're violent, they're ridden with disease, uh, and they're formidable shock troops uh, for the expansion kit. So that crew culture is an interesting plague legacy, generating the disposable males which Christendom had hitherto lacked and which suddenly gave its expansionism real teeth to go along with the guns and the galleons.
2: You've given a bunch of really nice examples there of the idea that necessity really was the mother of invention in this story and that people had to respond, they had to come up with technical innovations to respond to the lack of of people to do things. Um, Is that a really big part of this story, the, the need to change and to adapt?
3: I think so. While invention may have an independent life you know, in the individual ingenuity, um the pressure that plagued places to select and develop the most useful uh, inventions is huge so you do get for example it's not just the eyeglasses uh, you get much more window glass you increase demand for for wax for candles for whale oil for lamps so the, people are trying to enhance light. In, in various ways so that you can, you can squeeze more out of your artists. So I think that's, that's pretty important. Although I'm not able to pursue it far, you know, even a big book has to stop somewhere. I cannot help but think that plague played a role in the emergence of the Reformation and in resistance to the established church, which was blamed for the misdeeds that led God to visit plague upon humanity. Um, They didn't blame God. They couldn't afford to because he was their only chance of an afterlife. But they did blame the Pope and his fat monks, as they were called at the time. And you start to get evidence of uh, what I would call proto-Protestant movements quite soon after the Black Death. Uh, And eventually, of course, in 1517, you get Luther nailing his commandments to the wall. Um, but there's a long backstory to that, and I don't think it emerged from nowhere.
2: And on a dark note, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you theorise that um, perhaps the plague uh, reinvigorated the slave trade and perhaps also led to the rise of, of racist attitudes. Is that correct?
3: Uh, yes, I would say, you know, this is we're talking about a halving of the population, not in all regions of West Eurasia, but in most, that's a massive shock. It's highly likely it's going to have all sorts of effects. There's no part of the pond where the ripples don't go. Uh, And the slave trade is one of those things. And in a sense, it's kind of obvious. You've just lost so many people. If you can extract people from a region that hasn't been beset by plague, such as West Africa, you have obviously got an advantage. And so while the slave trade is in decline in uh, Christian Europe, at least Western Europe, before the Black Death, because wages are so low, uh, after the Black Death, there's a reinvigoration of the slave trade. And and again, you can track it. The first uh, Portuguese attempts to take slaves in the Canary Islands, or at least the first sustained ones, take place as early as the 1360s. And so slave-taking becomes quite significant. It's gathering people that's important at the time. Uh, And you see this reinvigoration of the terrible, well, not reinvigoration, the creation of uh, the terrible Atlantic slave trade. And the Ottomans are also big in the slaving game. They take almost as many people out of Africa as the Europeans do. Uh, And to support slave systems, a certain amount of... Racism helps, but racism is also important in that it's a way in which settlers, people who take the huge risk of going overseas, which of course in the 16th century is more like going to another planet than travel today would be, uh, it assures people that they continue to be included in European races. So the inclusive effects of racism are important as well as the exclusive effects when settlers in the Americas, for example, are denigrated for going feral uh, and for, you know, becoming a crude, rough backwardsman, they can say, well, actually we're still as English or as Spanish or as Portuguese as you are because race transfers to the colonies much more easily than environmental factors or institutional factors. So, I think there is a connection with the rise of racism, and I'm pretty sure there is a connection with the rise of slavery. Um, So, you know, we're not talking good news here. We're talking bad news as well.
2: Now, to sort of chunk back up to the big theme in your book, the idea that the Black Death led to the rise of Europe eventually. You talk in the book about the fact that you're not making the case that this is the Black Death is the sole reason why this, you know, why why Europe rose to be the prominent economic area. And in fact, you explain that lots of reasons have been made for this, lots of theories have been put forward for it. And you're saying that this is just one part of the jigsaw, but quite a big overlooked part of the jigsaw, but you think it kind of argues against the ideas that have been put forward before of of European exceptionalism. Can you just talk a little bit about that?
3: Yes, well, uh, you know, I'm a curiosity-driven historian and uh, I've always wondered about why Europe? That's the big question. Why was it that this little backwater of a small continent became so globally dominant by the early 20th century And I couldn't quite accept, um, with the best will in the world, that it was necessarily because of European virtues or benign providence or because Europeans were racially superior or because they were the chosen people of God or because they just happened, for no explicable reason, to be more individualist or more inventive. I just didn't buy this, you know, not, not being woke or politically correct, but it's just implausible that the package of reasons for the rise of Europe should be so flattering. Contingency should mean that there are a few random variables and a few vices as well as virtues. And so I I looked for non-value-laden reasons for Europe's rise. They don't necessarily diminish the scale of the European achievement, and in fact, arguably, they enhance it. But they do say that, you know, this isn't hardwired into European genes or into European religion or into European law. Uh, It came about because Europeans, among others, um, adapted to the new realities of the post-plague world uh, with the ingenuity and determination that they did
2: You've made a compelling argument for why the Black Death might have led to to the rise of Europe. I'm sure listeners some listeners are wondering why not India? Why not China, which as listeners will know were, you know, important civilizations uh, which were overtaken by Europe during the period. So why doesn't your same argument extend there. Does it go back to uh, what you talking about earlier about the, the differential geographic impact of the, of the plague to start with, or is it the, the fact the changes have finally sort of coalesced more and more in, into a, a smaller and smaller area of, of Western Europe?
3: There's a bit of that last, but, but the main thing I think is that um, for various reasons, China and India produce the world's most desired manufactured products. In the case of China, it's silk and porcelain. In the case of India, it's fine cottons and maybe what's steel, you know, particularly fine steel. So everyone agrees that these are the most desirable products and that they can't make them as good as the Chinese or the Indians themselves. So their merchants go to China and India, not vice versa. Let's focus on China, say. The Chinese don't have to go to the world to get Uh, It's desirable products. People come to it. The world comes to it. China and India are able to globalise by attraction because everybody comes to them to obtain silks and porcelains, And they bring things like furs, slaves if the Chinese want them, which they don't often because uh, they've got plenty of people, and gold. Very often the Chinese will take nothing but gold or silver for their silks. So um, you've got this situation where the Chinese and Indians don't expand, not because they can't. In fact, there are signs that they could have, Chinese in particular, in the early 15th century, but because they don't need to. The world comes to them. Why not let other people do the dirty work and take the profits at your end? Why not let them undergo the dangers of ocean voyages and the discomforts of ocean voyages and of uh, tropical diseases And so the Chinese and Indians are are kind of leaders of the global economy. Other people have to come to them and other people have to do the dirty work. The trouble is that doing the dirty work, you get better at it. And by the early 19th century, the Europeans at last develop a technological edge in the form of steamships, which enables them to take on the Chinese. Prior to that, you could plant a a trading station on the coast of China, but you couldn't do much to China. No European power could tackle China, really. The, the Russians tried a couple of times and uh, didn't succeed. The Portuguese and the Dutch tried. Um, uh, essentially, the Chinese would, would come up to speed with European plague forge technology and then sort of lapse back uh, after the need disappeared. So we're not talking about... Uh, it's, it's almost the inferiority, of European and Islamic manufacturing rather than the superiority that generates their expensive uh, success. You know, the Chinese have got what they want and vice versa doesn't apply. Therefore, they have to go to China.
0: That was Professor James Bellage. The World the Plague Made, The Black Death and the Rise of Europe is out now, published by Princeton University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
3: The Western world was asleep.